This story begins on a cold winter's morning. Dark and dreary is the period now under our consideration. The mists of oblivion enclose the land. A few weak and scattered rays dimly shed their illuminating beams over the surface and are scarcely able to penetrate the dense atmosphere which overshadows the land. The year is 2020 and I'm on my way to the treasure house in Beverly to have a look at Iron Age swords uncovered in nearby South Cave back in 2002. For anyone who thought my opening description was describing Celtic Britain due to the foreboding and mystical language used, please remember this moment, I will come back to it later. The weapons cache contained five swords, 35 spearheads, and they were all covered with shards of Roman amphora. Dating has placed the burial between 35 BC and 70 AD. Studies on the metal uh, that are contained in the scabbards found that it was probably made locally, certainly at least in Britain, although one of the pieces may have used an imported metal. These swords, however, don't show an insular barbaric people, though. The scabbards have a beautifully designed swirling pattern running down their sides. All along the pattern, red and blue glass is inset amongst the curves. More impressive yet, one has a hilt made from elephant ivory and another a pommel made from whale ivory. The grips have been made from materials such as deer antler and the jawbone of a whale. This display shows a skilled and resourceful people. Not only that, but they traded with the wider world. Just as the inhabitants of Iron Age Yorkshire hankered after coloured glass from the Baltic and elephant ivory from distant Africa, so too may people of this wider world want goods, materials and ideas from Yorkshire. The broken Roman amphora laying on the weapons has been identified as coming from Spain or Portugal. The lazy historian at this point will assume these subhuman Celts were introduced to the wider world and all its words by the cultured humans who spoke Latin. But take for a moment the example of the Ferriby boats. Discovered on the banks of the Humber Estuary by the Wright brothers in 1931, named after the village they were discovered in, North Ferriby, three boats were eventually rescued from the thick Humber mud. Scientific dating revealed these boats to be from around 2000 BC. That makes them around 4,000 years old. Made out of oak, these clinker-style boats used overlapping planks fastened onto an internal frame. As it stands, the Ferriby boats are the oldest example of a clinker-built boat in Europe. For the earliest example in the world, we would have to go to Egypt, 600 years before the Ferriby boats, in 2600 BC. A great pharaoh had their clinker-built royal barge dismantled and placed in this final resting place, a great pyramid. It must have been an object of great importance. This doesn't mean these new boats were invented in 2600 BC and took just 600 years to reach the British Isles, but reconstructed boats are believed to be seaworthy enough for the North Sea coast and the English Channel. So long before the Romans began writing their own and everyone else's history, the sea was not a barrier, quite the opposite. It was a transport network, carrying people, ideas, beliefs, knowledge, materials and technology. One more thing before I move on. I want to stop calling the inhabitants of East Yorkshire these people, or with a catch-all phrase, Celts. They had a name, the Parisi, which to our modern ears is awfully similar to that of a specific area within France. Or is that just lazy historical thinking again? Anyway, the Parisi lived on the land north of the Humber estuary. The name attached to this land is not Yorkshire. This is Deira. But as I stand in front of this magnificent find, I can't help a feeling of despair welling up inside. There is plenty of information provided by the Treasure House and the University of Hull. Sadly, not even the boffins can answer my burning questions as to why the weapons were buried. 
and what this tells us about the events in the area at the time. They have their theories, of course, ranging from ritual burials or concealment for the purposes of Roman resistance to the more everyday scrap metal storage intended for recycling purposes by local metal workers. The mysteries of the South Cave weapons cache, for now, will remain just that, a mystery. Maybe then I could find out as to what happened to the Parisi of Deira. A quick calculation in my head leaves me feeling despondent once more. In the hundred years following the 43 AD landing of Romans in southern Britain, Caraticus had led a revolt before being betrayed by Queen Cartamundia of the northern Briganti tribe and handed to the Romans as a prisoner. The power base of the Druids and supposedly the Druid culture was destroyed when the Roman army marched on Anglesey in 59 AD. Within a couple more years, Boudicca's revolt was brutally ended. Within all that, the Parisi had buried the swords and arrowheads in a pit, dug into a ditch of an Iron Age settlement in Deira. This act in itself seems to poetically mirror the silent disappearance of the Parisi people as they are buried under a history fashioned by the narrative of overexcited historians hailing each new era as an invasion. Following the Roman invasion, we hurriedly move on to the Saxon invasion. Before you know it, our history excitedly awaits the Vikings and the Parisi have become a long-forgotten entity. If there is indeed a story here, just how long will it be? And importantly, will it be of any significance? What I have discovered is a story that continues for 600 years after Boudicca's revolt. Deira and the Parisi will play a role in the ever-changing and sometimes surprising story of the British Isles. I'm calling this the mystery of the South Cave weapons cache. Where did the Celts go? Hope you enjoy. We start in the Iron Age, approximately 1,000 years prior to the arrival of the Romans in Britain. Deira is a land of two halves. Deoworld is a forested area, occupying the hills and plains of the western half of the land. To the east, reaching out to the North Sea coast, was mainly marshland. Possibly difficult to sustain large populations, it was inhabited. Between sandy ridges and the wetlands, bog iron forms, which was used in metalworks and maybe even the South Cave swords. Most iron objects found in this region date from between 400 and 100 BC. Evidence from excavations suggest iron smelting became quite prolific in the area. This land is now home to the city of Hull, but don't get the wrong idea about my description. Hull couldn't exist without the marshland being drained. That didn't start happening till the 12th century by Cistercian monks. The Cistercian monks were famous for draining swamps. In their place would thrive agricultural lands with rich soil and a strong base of religious practices. This is not to be confused with Donald Trump, who was famous for saying drain the swamp, but in fact siphons off streams of cash onto his own lands or golf courses, and in their place would thrive rich people forming a strong base of religious bigotry. We now call this area Holderness, derived from hollow or low Deira, with Ness added in a rather playfully descriptive way. The peninsula looked like a nose, so hollow Deira Ness became Holderness. My opening sentences were in fact a description of Iron Age Deira albeit through the eyes of 19th century British imperialism. One of my sources contains reproductions of original work. Compiled in the 19th century, a host of contributors overlay details that fit their blinkered worldview and dismiss that which they deem insignificant. Information that may not fit their grand origin story is quickly skewed and brushed under the carpet. Indeed, there are many comparisons that can be drawn up between the imperial Roman and British attitudes in regards to themselves and others. 
but that is a whole other topic for another day. In researching this story, I have read the word primitive many times over, used to describe the people and their way of life. I have tried to cut through this as best I can, so if my description seem brief or vague, it is because I have discarded the supposition. The story of the Parisi has been overlooked already, therefore, as I try to shine a light on them, I will do my best not to let archaic and unverified attitudes skew their story once more. Except for my own, of course. When taking a journey through Deira, we will roughly follow an Iron Age road running west to east, from the hills to the North Sea. First we will visit Druidstown, now called Druton, close to South Cave and the Weapons Cache. Druids were not just religiously important, they may have also had a leading role throughout society in general. Nowadays you could drive through Druton and not realise. If you did that though, you'll miss out on two things. The farm shop sells a cracking pork pie, and secondly, there is a natural monolith named St Austin Stone. More on that later. A population of Druids seems significant, but their activities were not limited to Druidstown. Their gods were not alive, certainly not in a way that could be idolised in a picture or a statue. Their gods seemed to live within nature. Deira and all its component parts act together to cover all aspects of their worship and rituals. It was as if the priests had everything prepared for their purpose within the land. Nearby Lonsborough, now a fine example of country living with a grand house, extensive hunting lands and workers' cottages, lived the Delgavitia tribe. The name, meaning place of gods, was home to a temple and a fort wherein sat the local chief. If we start to ascend the hills and enter deeper into the forest of Deowold, we arrive at an uncovered sanctuary or temple, Godo, in the hilly place, Mundiga. Godmundingham, now softened to Goodmanham, was a place where the Druids would perform their sacred rituals. The location may have been chosen due to the grove of oak that grew here. The oak was sacred and an intrinsic part of their rituals. Pliny the Elder, who had written about the Druid priesthood, observed that they chose groves of oak for the sake of the tree alone, and they never perform any sacred rites unless they have a branch of it. As the hills drop away towards the area of Holderness, the Westwood, as it is known now, was home to a fort. Burial mounds have also been discovered running parallel with the road connecting the holy sites of Deowold with the next place I shall discuss. Is this evidence of a processional route for religious ceremonies, or just a way of keeping the memory of your ancestors close by? I don't know. To the east of the hills another sacred grove of oak grows in the forest of Deowold. Leckenfield was yet another site that would host druidic rituals. Still continuing east, there was a site of religious importance. Not only that, but it might have an interesting origin story. In the Brythonic, or Old Welsh, then spoken around these parts, it was named Llinurafanc. Because I won't get away with saying that too often, and apologies to Welsh speakers out there, I will use the anglicised version, Lake of the Beaver, which became Beaver Lack. Beaver Lake, over time, this was softened to Beverly. The first origin story suggests Iron Age Deira is like a living theatre. All the inhabitants would worship Noah, and like the Beamish Open Air Museum, would work tirelessly to reenact a moment in time in devotion to a common cause. A raft or beaver would sit in the middle of the lake. Balancing on top would be symbols of the last vestiges of life on Earth following a catastrophic flood. With the land purged, oxen would pull the beaver raft out of the lake. Humanity's last hope would now rest in the hills of Deowold, their Mount Ararat. The second origin story is no less mad and no more believable. In fact, it's not even from England, but bear with me on this one. Prior to the Romans' arrival, Brythonic culture and language was not isolated to Wales. Wales and England had yet to be demarcated. Regional groups from the Strathclyde Welsh and the Godothin of Lowland Scotland 
to the Cumric people of Regad, now Cumbria, and Elmet in West Yorkshire, would often form a collective called the Henogleth. The Brythonic people of Wales, the Cymry, would refer to them as Northern Kin. So it is in Wales, Pembroke to be precise, where the tale of the dreaded Afanc still lives on. The Afanc is a lake monster. This demonic creature was a combination of a beaver and a crocodile. It was believed that it would attack and devour anyone who entered its waters. Legend has it that it was slain by King Arthur himself. The beast was so large that the water displacement just from its presence alone could cause flooding. Some stories would have you believe that it was the wild thrashings that drowned all the people of Britain. There is a clear common thread between these two tales. They both cover a story of death by drowning, a purge of the land and rebirth. The latter story appeals to me on a human level. I can hear some of you now calling me a hypocrite and that I am indeed about to skew history myself, making me no better than the previous writers of this topic. We will probably never know the truth of it, but I'm not going to lazily label the hypothesis of best fit as the truth. Quite the opposite, it's most certainly complete bunkum. But there is a truth in how these stories form. I have no doubt that the people of Deira understood the dangers of water, between the bogs of Holderness and the lakes embedded deep within Deowold. This would have been an ever-present threat. These places are considered a danger to life now. Why was it any different back then? Storm surges in the North Sea, caused when an intense storm coinciding with high tide leads to the sea rising up and over the coast and swamping low-lying land. It's easy to see how this would have had all the hallmarks of an end-of-world event back in Iron Age Day era. This is still just supposition, though. The truth I'm talking about lies within the process of creating and the purpose of telling a story itself. Adults across the world tell stories to children as a way of warning. The Boy Who Cried Wolf is a classic example. This helps pass on a knowledge, a set of ideals, or a straight-up warning in the case of the Afanc, particularly useful before the invention of schools. As for the process of creating a tale, folklore is created when the unknown and curiosity meet. A common weakness shared by all humans is the desperate desire for answers. I say weakness in this context because it can lead to complete untruth substituting the facts when the facts just aren't known. This is like an answer found through best fit. Other examples we're all guilty of is filling in the blanks or embellishment. This folklore tradition is embedded in every one of us and is present now as it ever was. If you don't believe me, listen to the podcast Gossip Mongers. Tales are still being created and shared all born out of the human condition to try and make sense of that which makes no sense. So in regards to the beaver story, I believe that a lie can be created sincerely and out of the truth. The lie is the beaver, but the sincere belief that a body of water is dangerous is the truth. And so many years later, our knowledge has changed, the story may have evolved, but the truth that the people of this area saw the lake as a significant element of their existence, enough that is to identify it, label it and live by it. It's warming to think that despite being silenced by history, this is one way they live on, as part of a common thread, not starting with them, but continuing through them, throughout recorded history, and now through me. But what about the people of Deira? What little we know about them largely comes from archaeology. The first mention in any written record comes from the ancient geographer Ptolemy in 140 AD. In his work describing the world at the height of the Roman Empire, he wrote... Near a bay suitable for harbour are the Parisi and the town of Petuaria. The word Parisi has been dissected by many people. Interpretations have led people to believe that it could mean the rulers, people of the cauldron or spear people. That last one could carry some truth to it. A burial ritual in Deira from the Iron Age involved throwing spears into the grave. When covered up with soil, the wooden spear shafts would stick out above the burial mound. 
The wooden shafts have long since rotted away, but the spearheads preserved and have been unearthed in many sites. Don't rush to a conclusion though, you have yet to hear all the information that has been uncovered. Let's now think about the fact that Parisi is an awful lot like Paris. According to a quick internet search, it tells me that Paris is a place on the Seine River in northern France. There you go. Anyway, this potential link between these two areas, and others like it, did not go unnoticed by Julius Caesar, who noted, The maritime portion is inhabited by those who passed over from the country of the Belgae for the purposes of plunder and making war almost all of whom are called by the names of those states from which they spring, they went thither, and having waged war, continued there, and begun to cultivate lands. Peel away his obsession with war, and this may be useful yet. Caesar had a life of war, subjugating the Gauls, pushing back unrest at their border with Germanic pagans, a quick trip to southern Britain before crossing the Rubicon home just in time for an uprising. It was a major factor in his life, therefore it won't be difficult to see how this was the lens from which he viewed the world. Remember the Ferriby boats from earlier on? We already know they had the means to travel across the channel and traverse the North Sea coast. The signs are good for this one. Let's keep digging. Many Iron Age grave sites have been excavated throughout Deira. Burton was used as a cemetery, as was Arras, near Druidstown. Arras contains over 200 circular graves aligned north to south. Objects found on these skeletons include rings and bracelets of brass, jet ornaments and amber jewellery. One grave uncovered a brass torque around the skeleton's neck, another, quite unusually it is noted, wore a bracelet around their leg. The most valuable discovery was perhaps that of the chariot wheel. The iron rim was preserved along with brass ornaments and a chain believed to be from the chariot or horse's harness. Although chariot wheels have been found in burial sites elsewhere throughout the British Isles, it does seem to be a rather Yorkshire characteristic. A particular note has been written from the archaeologist stating that the skeletons have suffered no trauma. So far, so Brythonic. The burial sites in Deira have the same characteristics as the rest of the British Isles. However, amongst the round barrows are square barrows. The square burial sites are found nowhere else on the British Isles. Other objects unique to the square barrows of Deira include angular style of pottery and anthropoid swords where the handles and pommel are carved into a human-like figure. The skeletons in these graves have been laid in a crouching position. These sites and others throughout Deira hold characteristics that set this area apart from the rest of the British Isles. This culture is different enough to be given its own place in the historical record. The Parisi, with their Arras culture, between the 4th and 1st century BC, have left an intriguing stamp on history. If we leave Deira for a moment, we can take a look further afield to see if these unique features have been found elsewhere in the world. And indeed they have been, in the Marne Valley region of Champagne and the Seine Valley region around Paris. Both these areas contain square Iron Age barrows, complete with crouched burials, anthropoid swords, angular pottery and spearheads. There is no doubt the cultural connections between the two regions were strong. Furthermore, there are no mutilated skeletons or settlement destruction from an invasion. Grave goods from both styles of barrow and Deira were classically Brythonic. The evidence suggests there is a more peaceful reason for this integration. Maybe each area had materials that were beneficial to the other. Trade would have been easier than war. It was possible to navigate by sea, but I think the resources at the time would make transporting Holderness bog iron or Whitby jet far more achievable than an entire army to subjugate the land. I'm sorry Caesar, the conquering idea seems a little silly right now. He may have had his part to play though. 
It is not hard to imagine having bullish neighbours flexing their muscles or a conquering hero desperate to write his own name in the history books displacing large populations. And if your neighbourhood around Paris or Champagne was in a dangerous place, then why wouldn't you take a trip to your namesakes across the water? These are thoughts on the subjects. We don't really know why, but I don't think it would have been sparked by a singular event. It may have been developed slowly, interspersed with more intense periods of movement. This is supposition though, so I'll shut up now. By the time of the Roman occupation, the name day era is no longer used, not by the Romans anyway. Welcome to Petuaria. Recently, the name Petuaria has been revived in the form of the X-55 express bus from Hull to Gaul. Oh, how Claudius would have wept over his legacy. The name has also been attached to the village of Bruff, which sits on the north bank of the Humber. During Roman occupation, a fort stood on this site, which also had a harbour and acted as a ferry service connected with Winteringham on the south bank. To call this place Petuaria is not at all incorrect, nor is it entirely precise either, based on the information I have seen. This may seem like I'm nitpicking, and for those who know me, this isn't born out of jealousy because Bruff was a neighbouring rival village to where I grew up. Both North Ferriby and Beverley have been referred to as Petuaria. Petuar is Brythonic for four. The land, like in the rest of the empire, is organised into units then subdivided. Bruff is, by my theory, a sub-district of Petuaria, as is North Ferriby and Beverley. North Ferriby is recorded as Vicus Petuarensis, that is, a settlement related to Petuaria. Whether my theory is right is not important, but it does highlight a disheartening point. By and large, the Parisi, to the best of my knowledge, were more welcoming of the Romans than their Brigante neighbours and didn't put up a major resistance. Maybe they heeded a warning from their Parisian cousins and decided it wasn't worth it. Romans must have felt secure enough as luxurious villas with tiled mosaic floors were built all over the countryside. Although the Parisi would not have partaken much in this luxury, they have shown to benefit from the Romans by being part of an enormous trading network. Archaeological evidence suggests an economy based on a monetary system which grows hand in hand with the new wheel-thrown pottery industry that has arisen. What is disheartening about this, you may wonder? I mean, it's only words. What's in a name? When discussing De Era, the landscape and the people were woven together. Both parts would form their society, their way of life. Petuaria seems more like a commodity than a home. The Romans seemed to like it for external reasons. The ferry crossing was a convenient place to get soldiers up to the north to defend the borders of empire. Huge swathes of Dea world were chopped down, no doubt to support massive building projects far away. The population had been drained by successive conscriptions into the Roman army. The name and identity of the area no longer chosen by the people who lived there because of their association with the land, but for bureaucratic purposes, so someone on the far side of the world can easily administer to the running of the land stripping it of not only your resources, but your way of life. Even in reading this, the Parisi are disappearing, fading into the background of the story, and yet they are still here, living the best way they can, no longer masters of their land, adapting to change, sometimes through choice, and other times it's forced upon them. After the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the Parisi had Deira back. The name Petuaria, holding little meaning to them, was quickly discarded. The future does look bleak, unfortunately. Deowold, the large forest, has been stripped of its resources. It is hereby only referred to as a wood in Deira. I am confident that the mighty Deiran Oak would make a fine fleet of ships, but this would have meant nothing to the Parisi. It wasn't just resources that were stripped from the land, people had been too. Some were taken as slaves, others to the army. All served Rome. Deira was vulnerable. 
the Picts seized their opportunity to burst forth from behind the walls of Hadrian and Antonius. Unchallenged by Roman might, the lands of the Brythonic, former Roman-occupied Britain, were soon overrun by the marauding Picts. The Parisi faced certain destruction. If you can't defend yourself, you need a friend who will. This situation was not unique to the Parisi. The solution came in the form of Saxons, Angles, Jutes and Frisians. Contemporary historians are making a strong case for the idea that these Germanic pagans were here by invitation and not invasion. But before I discuss these events, I want to take a look at Christianity, the seeds of which were sown by the Romans. It was a long way off establishing a firm foothold in Britain, but it had got its foot in the door. Up till now, conflicts and friction occurred between two opposing societies occupying the same land, namely the Parisi and the Romans. Now, however, there are three groups on the land. The triumvirate include the Brythonic pagans of the Parisi, the Germanic pagans of the Angles, and somewhere scattered between these were early Christians, championed by the church in Rome. Believed to have occurred in Rome during the 6th century, a chance meeting between Gregory and some child slaves led to Rome making a concerted effort to bring Christianity to all in Deira. Walking past slaves, Gregory saw uncommon beauty and symmetry of form within their faces. Gregory inquired as to who they were. Angles, they replied. You should be angels, exclaimed Gregory in ecstasy. The slaves mentioned they were from Deira, and that their king was called Ella. This greatly pleased Gregory as he returned with Alleluia and proclaimed that the praise of the true God shall be henceforth re-echoed in their own land. Gregory never did get a chance to lead a mission to Deira. Shortly after this chance meeting, he became Pope Gregory, and so sent Augustine in his stead. The Pope had a clear strategy to convert the pagan masses. Augustine was directed to indulge some of their ancient peculiarities by incorporating into Christianity, in every practical point, the less offensive tenets of their superstitions. He was also instructed to convert existing temples into Christian churches by merely destroying the idols and consecrating the altars. It does seem that the Pope's orders were carried out. The stone monolith at Druidstown was used to spread the word of God to the heathens, taking its name from the man who preached there. I have to say at this point there are no records of Augustine in Deira. It may be that the records were never written, lost or destroyed, maybe it wasn't even Augustine but it later has been attributed to him. What we do know is that Christianity was present and always proselytising. Beaver Lake too was the site of a Christian edifice. There is barely anything mentioned about this structure except for one very small description. It had a roof. This is what set it apart from Brythonic pagan sites. And like the Romans chopping down Deowold and oak groves in previous centuries, the Parisi were once again separated from their gods. The gods existed within the environment, and the environment had been shut out. There's only room for one god here. So just how well did the Pope's plan work? Well, terribly, quite honestly. Ecclesiasticals followed this experiment and noted that Christianity in Deira was plagued by heresy. Remember the Parisi earlier absorbing ideas from across the sea in Gaul? Well, it seems they have done the same with religion. They took what they liked from Christianity and absorbed them into their current belief structure. It must have been with shock and sadness when the representatives of the Christian faith observed even pagan bards are habited in the sacred robe of a Christian priest. Once again we find the Parisi are alive and living in Deira, albeit seeming like they have finally lost the plot. Now would be a good time to bring the final member of our triumvirate back to play. According to legend, the Saxons arrived under the leadership of two brothers, Hengist and Horsa. In return for a payment, 
The Saxons, acting as hired mercenaries, helped push the Picts back up north beyond the Hadrian's Wall. It seems the Saxons held their end of the bargain, but became angry when their subsidies were not paid. Horsa threatened to ravage the land in order to punish their, up to now, allies. A meeting was organised between the Brythonic chiefs and the two brothers. It was said to take place at Stonehenge. The brothers were not there to negotiate, it seems. They had the Brythonic chiefs slaughtered. A battle ensued in which Horsa was killed, but the Saxons were victorious, and Hengist, the sole leader of this Germanic warband, did as his brother had wished and ravaged the land. They burnt down and destroyed towns and villages, slaughtering the defenders, sacrificing the priests of Druidism and bishops of Christianity on their own altars. The inhabitants of Britain started referring to Hengist with a name, one that clearly shows he is no longer welcome, the Freckled Intruder. Eventually, the Germanic pagans made it as far north as Deira. One writer claims this was Hengist, though a number of other writers believe he never went much further than Kent. This could be a situation similar to Augustine earlier. What is written is that Deira was ravaged and the inhabitants put to the sword. The Christian edifice at Beaver Lake was targeted and destroyed. What does lend some credibility to this record is that the church did in fact get rebuilt in Beaver Lake following this event, though as to why it needed that, it did not say sadly. It would be the Angles and not the Saxons who would inhabit the Midlands and the north of modern day England. They kept the local name Deira, as did the Angles further north in Benicia, around modern-day Northumberland. Goodmanham was still a religious site, but now dedicated to Thor the Thunderer of the Germanic pantheon of gods. Nearby Delgavitia still seems to be a fort, but using the Germanic suffix Burg, Lonsborough, as it becomes, is controlled by Angles, not the Parisi it seems. Surely as fellow pagans, the Angles would look kindly on the Parisi as brothers-in-arms against the Christian church maybe even finding common ground between their ways of life and religions, leading to a tolerant atmosphere in which the Parisi could continue and thrive in their beloved lands. In short, they despised it. Their hatred of it was equal to that of their hatred of the Christian religion. You can only imagine then of what they made of the heretic Christian Druid hybrid practices being performed. Both Druidism and Christianity at this stage lacked an appearance or image of a present deity. The Angles, however, had embraced iconography in their religion, as far as they were concerned, the gods were not invisible. They came to the conclusion that the Brythonic and Christian gods had abandoned their people. As a result, they believed the Parisi to be an unnerved and divested of natural courage. They're not really wrong, but I doubt it was because their gods had left. The Parisi had been losing a battle of attrition for a long time. I'm going to use an Aris culture burial as an analogy. The Romans dug the pit. The Parisi lined up at the edge of the pit and let the Romans push them in. To confuse proceedings, heretical druids adorned in Christian robes would throw spears on those interred. Finally, the angles would fill the hole in with soil, and all that's left is a singular sign that there was once life, the spear shafts protruding from the mound. And in the real world, all that seems to be left is the name Deira. Around 616, Edwin, a Germanic pagan, becomes king of Deira and Benicia. When combined, it is the Kingdom of Northumbria because it lies, well, north of the Humber. He married the daughter of the only Christian king in Anglo-Saxon England. Ethelberg of Kent brought a Roman missionary, a man named Paulinus, with her to Northumbria and set about preaching to Edwin about the benefits of Christianity. Edwin seemed difficult to persuade at first, but in 626 he called a Witten, a meeting of his wise men, believed to be held in Lonsborough. When there... Edwin asked each member of the Witten what they thought about the doctrines being preached by Paulinus. Coifi, the king's high priest from Thor's temple in Goodmanham, 
spoke up on the matter. He was concerned that his lifetime of worship had amounted to no holy interventions, and so clearly their gods had no power. Another counsellor furthered this thought, questioning the fact that if their gods have no power in life, then what of the afterlife? He likened life to the brief flight of a sparrow through a comfortable room, saying, Thus it seems to me, O my king, that the life of a man on earth, in comparison with the life unknown to us, is just as if you were sitting at your table with your elderman in wintertide, when the fire was kindled and your hall made warm while it rained and snowed outside. And there came a sparrow, and quickly flew through the hall, coming in by one door and passing out through the other. During the time that he is passing through the hall, he is safe from the winter's storm, but it is only for the twinkling of an eye, and in the shortest period of time he passes from winter into winter. So it seems the life of man, it is ours for a little while, but what goes before it and what goes after it we know not. Therefore, if this teaching makes anything clearer and more certain, it is meet that we must follow it. It seems Paulinus, through his faith, can provide them with more answers about what happens in the unknown period before and after life. This resonated with Coifi and proclaimed, I can see clearly that what we have been worshipping is but nought. For the more earnestly I have sought the truth through our worship, the less I have found it. Therefore, O king, I now advise that we speedily destroy and burn with fire the altars which we hallowed without receiving any benefit. The king and his witten were now convinced, and converted. Wasting no time, Coifi asked permission from King Edwin to be the first to cast down the idols contained in the temples. Edwin agreed and provided him with a spear and a war horse for the task. With his retinue of men, Coifi hurried to the Temple of Thor at Goodmanham. Upon arrival, he charged headlong at the temple and cast his spear with such violence that it struck the altar and remained firmly fixed in its place. Onlookers expected the god's vengeance to rain down on Coifi, but nothing happened. This further proved that their gods were nothing but lumps of stone and wood. With that, the temple was pulled down with much excitement and zeal. The ground now littered with the debris of their former religion was set on fire, as was the sacred groves of oak that grew around the once important holy site. On Easter Day in the year 627, Edwin was baptised in Effervic, now York. The people of Deira keenly followed Edwin's example and Christianity began to flourish. Such was their enthusiasm for conversion, Paulinus was obliged to baptise large crowds in the River Swale. The conversion to Christianity would not be the only achievement of his reign. Edwin led Deira to many victories over his neighbours in fierce battles. After conquering the Brythonic lands of Regad, modern-day Cumbria and Lancashire, he controlled the whole of the north of what is now modern-day England, from coast to coast. This gave him new neighbours, who were quite rightly concerned about his successful expansionist plans. Adding fuel to the fire was Edwin's Christianity. This worry was so great that it created an unlikely alliance. Cadwallon, the powerful Brythonic pagan king of Gwyneth, and Penda, the mighty Germanic pagan ruler of the Mid-Angles in Mercia. Together they vowed to lay waste to Edwin's kingdom and eradicate every vestige of the new religion. Edwin, in defence of his altars, his god and his home, marched out to meet the combined forces of Penda and Cadwallon. In 633, the two armies met at Hatfield Chase. A bloody and dreadful conflict ensued. Edwin's army was routed and the king himself was slain in battle. The pagan alliance of Gwyneth and Mercia had been victorious. Deira was now wide open and defenceless. Paulinus and Ethelberg escaped to Kent, where their journey in this story started. Cadwallon was said to be more fierce and cruel than the heathen, for he was barbarian. 
led his army with fire and sword through Deira. They laid waste to the Christian buildings, and as for Christian people, neither age nor sex were spurred in their indiscriminate slaughter. The locals abandoned Christianity and joined their enemy in the destruction of the new faith. Druids were said to come out of hiding and free to practice their faith in open air once more. Cadwallon and his followers were said to have visited Beaver Lake, or more accurately for the moment, Clinurofank. The Christian edifice by the lake became the target of druidic fury and destroyed. The open lake with its sacred groves of oak were restored once more to become the theatre of the Brythonic pagan rites. It was recorded that Cadwallon celebrated with all the pomp and solemnity of ancient times. Scores of prisoners taken from the previous military campaign were sacrificed. The altar by the lake could have been mistaken for a butcher's block. The lake was said to be polluted with pagan practices. Was this the final resting place of all those sacrificed during Cadwallon's campaign? I have no direct evidence to say it was, but for the next few decades the words lake and pollution seem to always go together. Christianity had now taken a back seat in Deira and its influence was much reduced. Paganism in both Brythonic and Germanic forms were free once again to perform their rites. This was all despite the fact that Edwin was succeeded by his Christian nephew, Oswald, who in 634 took on Cadwallon in battle near Hexham. Cadwallon was killed and that the Britons were said to have dispersed back to Gwyneth and Druidism finally disappeared from the woods in Deira. It would still take another 20 years for Christianity to start re-establishing itself in Deira. It was recorded that Beaver Lake in the wood of Deira was so polluted by the abominations of idolatry. No attempts were made to restore the Christian establishment within its dreadful enclosure. We could take this literally, the lake was full of sacrificed bodies. It could be that the site is not and has not been used purely for Christianity, therefore it has been polluted by Germanic and Brythonic paganism. I personally favour the third possibility. In 655, Oswy, king of unified Northumbria, kills Pender in battle, becoming overlord of Mercia and most of the Saxon kingdoms of southern Britain. Oswy was a devout Christian, but unlike previous years, he did not take his lessons from Rome. Oswy had grown up in exile in the western isles of modern-day Scotland, in the kingdom of Dalriada. So it was the Irish monks of Iona who would come over to Northumbria and laid the foundations for the start of the true Christian age in Anglo-Saxon England. This means that the previous instructions to overlay Christianity onto local practices and locations was no longer the strategy being pushed. For Beaver Lake in particular, a new Christian church needed to be built in a new location. The job of reintroducing Christianity in Deira must have been as daunting as it was laborious and it would take a very special person to pull it off. As it happened, that very person was just a short distance from Beaver Lake. That person was called John. John of Harpham to be precise, for now. But in the year 655, he's just 15 years old. But really, that's a whole other story for a whole other day. Well, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. As with all my stories, they usually begin because I've heard of, of an event or an interesting character. In this case, it was definitely Coifi. It was my dad who told me the story about the destruction of the Temple of Thor at Goodmanham. Uh, and so, well, thanks, Dad. Uh, this one is for you. And in regards to everything else, well, there's a small part of me that just wonders that when the day comes when the seas start to rise again from, say, I don't know, global warming, something beneath Beverly stares and the residents come face to face with a demonic beaver crocodile.